Uh, good morning. Uh, Pastor Craig, when he saw that first dance routine dismissal video, he said, hey, the next time that uh, Brian gets up on stage, we should make him dance up on stage. And <clears throat> I thought to myself, I would love to just have like an ounce of dignity uh, left while I am up here with you. Um, speaking of having no dignity, I did sign up for the Crosswinds 5K. And if you're running that race, you will pass me by the mile one marker. Uh, if you have not yet signed up for the Crosswinds 5K, shameless plug, I think the video said 34 days away. So go ahead and sign up. It is a challenging course that happens right here at Crosswinds and is open to the community. It's a ton of fun. And uh, maybe you want to miss it, maybe you don't. But I hope to see you there. Uh, it's great to be here with you all in person. My name is Brian. Uh, for those of us who are not in person and are watching with us online live, welcome. Or for those of us who will be watching later this week, welcome. Uh, I am always excited when we get a chance to meet together. We're smack dab in the middle of a series that we're calling Christ in the Psalms. And so as we get going today, I figured we could start off with a question I have for you. It's a question you've probably been asked a million times. Have you ever attempted to transport 27 car tires before? No? That's surprising. Well, I have, and recently. Now, it's not important how I came into possession of 27 SUV and van tires. I use those car terms because I wanted you to know they're like 17, 18 inch wheels. They were pretty large. But what is important is that I had to transport all 27 at one time. The first destination on the stop of transportation was to my mechanics where I was going to pay for the majority of them to be disposed of. And then I was going to take the rest back to my primary residence and to some of the family that I had been storing them for. So there I am. It's a hot day. It's early this year in July. I am tired. I have 27 SUV and van tires now loaded up into the back of a five by eight pull behind trailer. And wow, 27 tires fills a medium sized trailer pretty fast. Maybe I didn't mention it yet, but Previously, my record was four tires at a time. I've never transported this many, so with a 575% increase to 27, the task was daunting. I tried my best with the two ratchet straps as I weaved them in and out of the tires to what I believed to be a good amount of tension on them. And I started up the truck and I turtle-paced it down the street I was on to the stop sign. To my surprise, in my rear view, all the tires were holding really well in position. So I turned right now onto a busier street and now I'm going over, I hit a railroad track, I get to the stop sign and again, quarter mile later, all the tires were doing really, really well. They were all in position in the rear view. But as I made another turn right, now onto a busy intersection, surprise turned into horror. Have you ever played the game Jenga? And you know that moment where you pull the wrong piece and the whole tower just falls down all over the floor. Well, this is the best way I can describe what I was now seeing in the rear view mirror. I could literally see tires rolling off the trailer, and as they say, a tire in motion stays in motion. I whipped my head around in disbelief, but yep, through the back window, there were no longer 27 tires in the trailer. At this moment of my life, I was really tired. I was stressed out. I had my, my four-year-old guy, Charlie, in the back seat, who's very curious about what's happening, who's asking me uh, nonstop, Dad, what's going on? Are the tires still there? Dad, what are you seeing? Dad, Dad, Dad. Uh, the tires stopped traffic as they now rolled and laid in the middle of the intersection. 
They found themselves in flower beds of nearby residences. If that was you and I uh, broke something, I apologize. And they were continuing to fall off the trailer as I pulled over on this nearly non-existent shoulder. It was a disaster. Like, in every sense of the word, a disaster. Circumstantially speaking, I was desperate. I was desperate for a solution to my problem. I was desperate for a feeling of calm and peace in a now chaotic state. I was desperate from the relief of feeling self-conscious, and maybe this was you, as you drove by me and just slowed down just long enough to take a good look, and then you kept driving. I was desperate for help because beside my four-year-old who's buckled in his car seat, I was alone in this challenge. This was a unique circumstance, but I hope that you can at least relate to that feeling of desperation. Surely you can probably think of a time in your life where something happened circumstantially that made you feel desperate. Or maybe it was something much bigger than just a circumstance. Maybe it was a health diagnosis, a tragedy, a loss, a situation gone wrong, an accident, a mental state, broken relationships, a bully. It's in these moments or times that we feel the most desperate for peace, desperate for help, and the desire for calm. And we want nothing more than relief or a solution to our problem that goes favorably in our direction. In the psalm that we're going to be exploring today, the psalmist David knew the feelings of desperation all too well. And what we, what we will see and experience from his experience with desperation is that God is faithful and can be trusted to help us no matter the situation. Another way that we could phrase this is kind of like this overarching big idea of the entire psalm. And that's that God helps and upholds us when we cry out to him. So if you have your Bibles, I would love to meet you in Psalm 54. We're going to read this short psalm in its entirety, and then we're going to go back through and comb it a bit. As I read it, I really want you to hear the desperation in David's words and how quickly the idea that God helps and upholds us when we cry out to him rises to the surface. Here we go, Psalm 54. Starts off, O oh God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O oh God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies and your faithfulness put an end to them. With a freewill offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. So in this psalm, it opens up with a desperate request from David for God's help, followed by the reason for that desperation. So I think we should look at the reason for the desperation first, found in verse 3, and then we'll go back and look at the first two verses at the plea. David, again, here's the reason for his desperation. In verse 3, he says, For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Here's the, the tires falling off the trailer moment for David. Here's the reason why he's pleading in desperation for God to help him. He says that strangers have risen up against him. Ruthless men sought his life. So the stakes are pretty high. 
David's circumstances, they're life-threatening. My translation says ruthless. Your translation might say violent or terror-striking men are physically trying to find and kill David. And so we can imagine that he's probably paranoid, looking over his shoulders, very concerned with who's around him. I'm sure he's losing sleep. He's stressed, anxious, confused, frustrated, and I'm sure he feels absolutely alone. But what makes this all the worse, what compounds this whole scenario for David, is actually that word stranger we see at the top of verse 3. Many Psalms contain a description that help give the reader, us, a context, helping to paint the backdrop or kind of the intention behind it. And Psalm 54 has one of these superscriptions that we read over. In my Bible, it says this. So here's kind of the the prefix to, to Psalm 54. It says, To the choir master, with stringed instruments, a masculine of David, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? So through this superscription that we see in other biblical and historical accounts, we know a couple things. We know that David would go on to assume the kingship. He would be king of Israel, but he was not king yet. There was another king. Who was it? King, king Saul was the king. And the current king, or sorry, the strangers that we just read about, they're actually not strangers at all. They're what's known, or they are who known as the Ziphites. And we see them in 1 Samuel 23, when it is David who leads his army in a victory over the Philistines to spare their city, a city of Israelites. These are fellow countrymen and women who David regarded as friends, as allies. But we see in the superscription that the Ziphites kind of tattle, rat out David when things go bad between him and Saul. It's one thing to be in enemy territory in the midst of a battle and to have the enemy combatant hunting for you. It's got to be quite another thing to be in your own country, your own community, your own neighborhood, and the people that you considered friends or allies are causing harm or trying to harm you. For David says, For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. And the reason why these strangers have risen against him or these ruthless men are seeking his life, David says, is because they do not set God before themselves. Even though these ruthless strangers were fellow Israelites, they did not set God before themselves. Now in the Psalm immediately before Psalm 54, you guessed it, 53, it's another masculine by David. And he makes this interesting claim. He says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt doing abominable iniquity. And so using some of those languages, we would say that these ruthless men who sought David's life in Psalm 54 were fools. They were corrupt people who did abominable iniquity because they did not set God before themselves. And in their heart, in their ignorance and pride, they claim there is no God. Now, there's a big problem with this, especially for God's chosen nation, Israel. And at this time, As the chosen nation, they had to keep their eyes fixed on God. They were a tiny country with some big foes around them. And so they had to keep God out in front as their leader and as their God. And they believed that in order to know the right way to live life, they had to have their attention fixed on the one who knew the way they ought to live. However, these Ziphites, these strangers, they rejected God's position in their life. 
And Saul's men in rebellion were violently trying to hunt down and execute David. Okay, we got some context. We have an understanding now. And I think we'll appreciate the intensity of the request of the plea that David makes when he says in verse one and two, he says, oh God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. Oh God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. In a position of desperation with David's back against the wall, he cries out to God in a plea to save me, God, by your name and vindicate me by your might. David is seeking salvation, the saving of his life, and he's asking that it be done in the name of God. By the name of God, he's asking to be saved. This word name in its original Greek it literally translates, and I love this, it literally translates as the reputation of God. David is crying out to God to save him and he is trusting in God's track record, his reputation to deliver him from the injustices, the injustice that's being done to him. The intensity of David's cry, I believe is turned up in verse, I think it's verse uh, two there, when he's begging for God's attention. He says, oh God, hear my prayer. Turn your ear toward me so you can hear the words that are coming out of my mouth. David's prayer is desperate, man. His life is a mess. And it's honestly uncertain if he's even going to finish this plea with God. These violent, ruthless neighbors who were not setting God before themselves are seeking his head. But David knows that to rebel against God is foolishness. And so instead, he does the opposite of these violent people and he sets God before himself because God has a history and God has a track record that can be trusted and he's got the might to back it up. And for us in this room all these years later, I think it's a good time to pause and reflect because I think we stumbled upon something and that something is this. What is currently set before us leads us. What is currently set before us leads us. We have this understanding now, this, this picture of the fools who do not set God before them. And in contrast, we have David who is doing the opposite. We see that the side who does not set God before them as their leader, as their guide, they're leaving a wake of destruction in their path as they attempt to guide themselves. And the other side has placed God out in front of him and his gaze is only on him as his help and guide. And so... This morning, who do we most represent in the story? Are we more like the fools who currently don't have God set out in front of us? Or are we more like David? And God is our sole focus right now. He's the leader. He's the God. What is currently set before us leads us. Now, there seems to be this strange, mysterious, wonderful correlation about desperation and dependence on God. It seems like we're drawn, at least in my experience, I'm drawn the closest to God when I'm desperate. When I was parked on that shoulder of the road, traffic stopped at all four-way intersection, tires everywhere. I remember muttering a few things. I won't repeat them. But then I also remember literally crying out to God in desperation because I was alone, stressed, anxious, feeling like, God, I need your help to overcome the circumstances at hand. I need your help to get these tires back on the trailer, protect me from traffic, protect my son who I left in the car and I'm hundreds of feet away now. 
So desperation leads to dependence on God. But what about the times when we're not desperate? When we're healthy? And there's actually a surplus of money in the bank account. And the kids are doing fine. Jobs are good. We actually enjoy it. When we find ourselves in circumstantial peace, what do we set out in front of us in those moments? Because we're not desperate at those times. I've flown in an airplane enough times to no longer pay attention to the safety procedures. Whether that's right or wrong, I don't know. Honestly, the only real concern I have is how am I going to survive two hours or however many in this tiny cramped coach seat um, because I'm a bit taller and then what am I going to do to pass the time? Those are really my only concerns. Besides seeing the cockpit or waving at the pilot when I get onto the plane, I really don't think about them at all and they are responsible for my safety during that entire duration. I don't think about them at all until we hit a little turbulence. Have you ever been in a plane that hits turbulence before? Anybody? Okay. So when your stomach drops and it feels like you're on a roller coaster as this giant vessel is being thrown throughout the air a bit, you begin to think about those pilots. And you ask questions like, man, I, I, mean, I hope they're mentally sharp today. Or I really hope that this is like the 10,000th time that they've gone through turbulence and they know exactly what they're doing. If you've ever flown before, I'm sure you can relate. We're kind of completely oblivious and passive about airplane pilots until we hit some rough air. And in full transparency, I do believe that this is currently my greatest struggle that I'm having in my relationship with God. I can and do become oblivious and passive about God more times than I care to admit when life is fine. When I do this, though, I'm not much better than the rebellious fools who do not place God out in front of them. What's currently set before us is leading us. And God's desire for me and God's desire for you is that he desires to be set out in front of us constantly, at all times, not just when there's turbulence in our life. Otherwise, we're really not much different from these ruthless strangers who have no regard for God's position or authority or for his name as we live our lives and as we treat God as more of a calling card when times are tough. And so if this is you, if you are here and you can relate and times are are pretty good in your life and God's really not set out in front of you right now as your leader and guide, then I think we have to repent And we have to turn our attention back onto him or we too will be leaving a trail of destruction in our wake as we live according to our way and not his way. If you are here though and things are not fine and you are in the midst of desperation, it's kind of weird to say, but I think you're the closest to God that you've ever been in your whole life. And you can consider that a blessing, not your circumstances per se, but that he's using these trials of many kind to set the Lord out in front of you. So David is in trouble. He makes a desperate plea for help to be saved by God's name and to be cleared of the wrongs against him. In the next two verses though, we see kind of a dramatic mood swing from David and really the pinnacle of the plea or prayer to God. David changes from asking God to declaring some things about God And so in verses four and five, David says this. He says, behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. 
He will return the evil to my enemies and your faithfulness put an end to them. The word helper and upholder here is, is pretty powerful. Did you catch the mood swing? Remember, David, he, he's crying out for salvation through God's name. And it's the reputation of God that David sets the Lord before him. Here in verses four and five, David's now expressing full confidence that he has because he 100% believes that God will show himself strong in David's circumstance. He says, behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In his faithfulness, he will put an end to them. This word helper, this word upholder, it carries the imagery of literal support. And when I think of that, I think of like an important supporting wall in your house or that I-beam between your foundation that's literally bearing the weight of your entire house. It's supporting everything. Without it, the house crumbles. And without him, without God, we crumble and we dissolve into ruthless strangers. We dissolve to fools. But with him, the Lord in his track record and in his faithfulness will come through for us and he will put an end to our enemies or that thing that has led us to desperation. Now, I don't know about you, but Psalm 54 has just, to me, it's been oozing similarities to the gospel and the access that you and I have to God through Jesus. At the time that David prayed these words in Psalm 54, Israel was awaiting the Messiah. Jesus was known about, but he was not known by name. The savior of the world had yet to come through the nation Israel. But fast forward 2,700 years, give or take 100 or so, Here we are in the year 2022, and the Messiah has come to earth. We do know him by name, Jesus. And many things are different now because of what he did all those years ago on the cross, through his resurrection, through his ascension. But it is by the name of Jesus Christ that for the past two millennia, all believers have cried out to. It is in Jesus's name and in Jesus's reputation that you and I, if you're a believer here this morning, have been saved. We've been vindicated from our sins and it's through his name today that we find our helper and the upholder of our lives. And so we can take kind of that big overarching idea that I told us about in the beginning and we can tweak it a bit and we get this for us and that's that Jesus helps and upholds us when we cry out to him. Now this of course is made possible when we keep our gaze fixed upon him and set him out before us. Maybe this is a new uh, gospel account, but there's maybe familiar for, for, for some of you. But there's a moment in the gospels where Peter, a disciple of Jesus's, learned the experience of David and the lesson of David, but kind of in a different way. Now, just to give you some context for this story, this account, it's late into the day. It's actually evening time. The disciples and Jesus had been hard at work doing ministry all day. And Jesus sends the 12 out in a boat to sail across the sea. And Jesus himself takes some time up on a hill to just spend time praying, which is really, really powerful. And uh, so the, I think the, the sea was described as big waves, strong winds. When suddenly... And somewhat terrifyingly, the 12 disciples see someone walking toward them and they're on the water. Who is it? It's Jesus. And when Peter saw the one who has power over creation walking on top of the water in enormous faith, what does Peter want to do? 
He wants to replicate it. He wants to also walk on water. And so with Jesus's blessing, Peter steps out of the boat and probably to everybody's surprise, including his own, he doesn't sink. Instead, somehow he has support to be able to stand on top of the water. He has solid footing. And with his eyes fixed on Jesus, Peter miraculously makes his way toward the Lord with crashing waves and blustering wind all around him. But in Matthew 14, verse 30, we see that Peter's eyes shift, even just for a moment towards something else. And when his gaze is removed from Jesus, he also then removes the upholder of his life and things take a drastic turn for the worse. In Matthew 14, verses 30 through 31, it says, but when he, Peter, saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? What is currently set before us, that's what's leading us. When Peter's eyes were fixed on Jesus, he literally did the impossible. Through the might of Christ, he walks on water. But the moment he no longer set Jesus before him, he grew terrified at his circumstances and he began to sink into the black raging sea. Now in a state of desperation, what does Peter do? He reorients his eyes back toward Jesus and he cries out, Lord, save me. And what does God do in the life of Peter? Jesus helps and upholds him when he cried out to him. True to his track record, Jesus reaches out and saves Peter and he asks him, why did you doubt? Why did you look away? Friends, we have a God who, out of just grace, mercy, love, puts up with our ignorance, our pride, and our foolishness. And I don't know, I don't understand why I do this so often, but when my eyes are fixed on Jesus, I can tell you it's literally the best I feel because I'm beginning to live life the way I was created to live. I'm looking to the one who created it for direction. When we trust and when we live according to the one who knows how to live life, it's the absolute best way. But like Peter a distraction will come along in my life or a circumstance will arise. And all too often, I exchange my gaze on Jesus for a temptation or the support of the money I earned or the upholding of my own abilities of self. And when I do this, I find myself in desperation. And now back in those moments, I cry out to God and through his reputation of being faithful to save me, he does it. And he rebukes and he trains and he corrects and he restores and he forgives, but he's now back as upholder and helper. And so let me ask you this question again. Where are you currently at right now? Who has your gaze? What has the affection of your eyes today? If it's anything other than Jesus, spare yourself the trouble because your foundation is troubling or crumbling and turn back to him. There are two verses left in Psalm 54. And yet again, David is going to make another dramatic mood swing. David has now moved into a posture of worship for what the Lord will accomplish in his life. And the final two verses of Psalm 54 again says this. David says, With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. 
I will give thanks to your name, to your reputation. O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble and my eye has looked and triumphed on my enemies. What I hope you're seeing and and what I, I really appreciate about these verses is that God has not yet delivered David or even saved him. The enemies are still hunting for him. It was only moments ago that he was in desperation mode. But in this dramatic shift, we now see a confident David who remembers that he has the might of a reputable God on his side. And he proclaims and makes a commitment to God, an offering, and he's now worshiping through the giving of thanks. And there's so much here that we could really dive into still, but we just don't have the time. But here's really the last thing I want us to see. And that's that David had no idea how God was going to rescue him or defeat his foes. He had no idea when it was going to happen or if it was even going to be in the way or the manner of which he wanted. But when David's eyes were fixed on God and as he remembered the Lord as the upholder and helper of of his life, those things all of a sudden didn't matter to him because it was through confident faith that he gives thanks to God in advance, knowing that through the might of him, he is going to answer that prayer. And this takes us to an important final point. When we ask God to help us, we trust him to do it in his way and in his time. I'm going to invite Dave to come back out. And as he makes his way back out, uh, I have some questions for us. The first question is, what does this all mean for you this morning? What does this all mean for you today? If you're here and you are a believer in Jesus Christ, I want to address us for a minute because you need to ask yourself, what currently has the affection of your eyes? Is your gaze fixed on Jesus or is it on something else? If your eyes are fixed on Jesus, then he is your helper and the upholder of your life. And if he's not, what are you experiencing as things are crumbling around you. Believers, we need to remember that we can pray with confidence in Jesus's name for the deliverance of our desperation. Jesus will vindicate our faith when people or situations or circumstances seem to attack us. Sometimes Jesus's deliverance, it will be immediate to our request. Other times it will be delayed. Sometimes it will be exactly as we hope for. Other times it will be very different. Sometimes it will happen while we still have breath in our lungs. Other times it may not happen until the other side of death. But regardless of timing, we can confidently pray in the name and the reputation of Jesus whose track record can be trusted and who, like David, we have 100% confidence that no matter what, God will support and uphold our lives. We can also thank God that at the end we know We have confidence and faith that Jesus will be victorious over all threats and all evil, giving eternal victory to all believers. So no matter what happens in this lifetime, one day we know and we have faith that deliverance will be enjoyed. For those of you in here who have never placed Jesus as their focal point and your gaze is not on him and you are an unbeliever, I think Psalm 54, man, is such a beautiful and simple picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the salvation that can only be found in him. Look, we are all desperate because of our sin. The assault of our enemy, Satan, has left us in a situation 
that we can't do anything about. Like David, like Peter, we are unable to save ourselves. And that's why God left heaven and came to earth in the form of man, Jesus. He came to live a life we couldn't live and to die a death we should have died. He overcame that death by rising again and defeating our enemy. And now he stands ready to deliver you and to give you the life that you were created to live in him. Today could be a monumental moment in your life where you take that step of faith and you cry out to his strong and reputable name to save you, to become the upholder and the support of your life. I love the way that Acts 4.12 states it. They say, he says, and there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Friends, it is in Jesus' name that we find help for all who are desperate. It is in Jesus' name that we find help for all who depend on him. And it is in Jesus' reputable name that we find help for all who are devoted to him. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word and how in one section of your word, it describes it as being living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. And we can read texts that are thousands of years old and yet God somehow, because it's living and it's active, it's so powerful and potent to our lives today. God, like David, we know that when we keep our eyes fixed on you, that's the best way to live life. You are the upholder and the support of our lives. But far too often, maybe it's just me, but I've been far too guilty of removing you out of that position as leader and guide and my gaze goes on to something else. And then I find myself inevitably in a spot of desperation to call out to you. And I just want to thank you for your grace and your forgiveness that just never seems to end. But Lord, we don't have to get to those places. And so I pray that you help me to keep my gaze on you today, tomorrow, forevermore. Lord, I pray for my friends here who are finding themselves in the midst of desperation, true desperation through health or relationships or whatever it may be that God, they would even sense right now in this moment, if we, as we sing this, this reprise of a song that we've sung already, that God, we can build our foundation on you, that it's solid, that it's trustworthy, that it's reputable, and that God, we can trust you over all things. We thank you for your word today in Psalm 54. We pray this in your name. Amen.